Hello, welcome back to the IQT podcast. In recent weeks, BNext has been breaking down the role of technology in combating the COVID-19 pandemic, and we've discussed diagnostics and contact tracing, standards of care, and the role of synthetic biology, and we've even had a chance to answer some listener mail, which was really terrific last week. This week, we're turning our attention to vaccines against SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. Developing a safe and effective vaccine, if we can, will be a critical tool, of course, in combating the outbreak and will save lives and get the world back to work. It's also perhaps the most complex medical countermeasure to develop. So put briefly, vaccines are microorganisms, whether they're live or dead or in fragments, that when you give to them to a person, they stimulate a protecting response in the, hu- in the human immune system without causing the disease themselves. And we've known since antiquity that being exposed to a disease or surviving one can bring immunity to future infection. And this, the application of this idea, vaccines really got going early in the 20th century and have saved countless lives. But there are also some diseases that have resisted our efforts to make an effective vaccine. And making an effective vaccine has many steps. And as I mentioned, they are pretty complex. But we have today the honor of being joined by our friend and colleague, Dr. Lou Borio. Lou, um, she's also a team member of BeNext, and she's a physician and an infectious disease specialist. She's also an expert in regulatory affairs and in the policy of public health and biosecurity, having been acting chief scientist at FDA and having had a lead role in biosecurity at the National Security Council. So welcome, Lou. And we'd like to ask your opinion today about what it takes to make a safe and effective vaccine generally, and what fates and what challenges we're facing now specifically in making a good vaccine for COVID-19. As we discussed before we got started, of course, there are more than 100 candidates that are in development of many different kinds. And uh, and we won't get into all of that. There's countless, uh, countless hours could be spent delving into all of that detail. Uh, Vaccinology is really complicated. But generally, anybody who sets out to make a vaccine faces uh, a common set of top-level challenges. And we wondered if maybe you could start to talk to us a little bit about what some of those are. Sure, Kevin. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And I would say that you're absolutely right that we need a vaccine to be able to restore our health and economic security. And let's take a step back about why we need that, right? So Given the features of this virus, we know that we won't be able to fully contain it until about 70% of the population is immune to this virus. So we have choices here. One choice is to achieve this level of immunity by repeated waves of infection over the next few years until we achieve this immunity. But when we look at the morbidity and mortality that will be associated with the strategy, it's truly unacceptable. So we don't really have a choice. We do need to achieve a safe and effective vaccine so that we can quickly, as quickly as possible, reach this level of immunity across the globe. Uh, I think it's really wonderful to see so many different vaccine developers already engaged in preclinical and clinical development. There are close to 100 vaccine candidates in development. About 10 or so have made it into the clinic already. They began phase one clinical studies. There are strong partnerships between developers and manufacturers emerging all over the world, specifically in Asia, in the United States, and Europe. 
Um, and, but it's gonna be a long haul. This clinical development is just the beginning. And I can't overstate the fact that we need not only multiple shots on goal because of the sometimes high failure rates that we see with these products, but we need multiple goals because not even the, the biggest and most robust vaccine developer today can meet the global need that this pandemic has created for a vaccine. Right. There's, there's never been a single vaccine manufacturer that has made a single vaccine for the entire planet before. That's correct. And if you bring their capacity, the capacity of all the developers together as it exists today, mm -hmm. it's still not sufficient to make vaccine for the entire globe. Not all at the same time. So when people set out to make a vaccine, what are some of the things that they think about? So you've talked about the scale of manufacturing. What do we, how do we judge, you know, when you, when you come up with a, a vaccine or one of the many kinds that are being developed uh, and you have, a, uh, you have what you think is a good candidate, how do we think about what a good candidate vaccine looks like? And what are the early stages in which this vaccine is tested for efficacy and safety? Sure. So the, I think one of the most critical aspects is a vaccine that is going to induce a high level of protective immunity. And that's usually neutralizing antibodies. Because, you know, one can generate antibodies that bind, but they don't neutralize. And we want a very high level of the neutralizing antibodies. And then it's a plus when they also induce the right type of cellular immune response. Mm -hmm. So they have a more robust and more durable uh, protection. Now, one of the um, challenges here is that we are learning about the immunogenicity and uh, immune response to this virus on the go as we're developing a vaccine. You know, it's usually, it's nice to be able to have that all squared away before you embark on this ambitious program. So here we're learning on the go. But there is you know, good, good reason to be optimistic uh, because it does seem that uh, this virus does induce a protective immune response in most people. And uh, if one can replicate that in a vaccine, you will achieve a safe and an effective vaccine. The, you know, this is fascinating. There's a great deal of, of questioning or um, discussion, I should say, around the idea of the length of protection as well. You know, part of what an, uh, an immune, what, part of what a good vaccine does, of course, is induce immunity. Ideally, it, in, it induces lifelong immunity, but not all vaccines will do that. That's right. Not all will. And in this case, uh, you know, we know that the natural response, immune response to coronavirus in general tend to wane after two to three years. So, you know, it's possible that this will happen with the vaccine too. And the virus could also mutate in a way that will necessitate a new vaccine. But, you know, going back to what makes a good vaccine, so it's really um, a stimulus that will generate that immune response, the desired immune response. And there are many different ways to categorize different types of vaccines. And I like to think about them in two broad categories. Gene-based vaccines that deliver gene sequences that encode the protein antigens that are producing the host, host cells, and protein-based vaccines that include the whole inactivated virus, individual viral proteins or subdomains, and also viral uh, proteins that are assembled as particles. And these are all manufactured in vitro and cell lines. Mm -hmm. Now, one reason for optimism in addition to what we're learning about this virus is that the science of vaccine development has really um, 
improved a lot in the last few years due to science and technology. We have better manufacturing platforms. We have structure-based antigen design. We understand what makes a poor antigen. There is computational biology, there's protein engineering, there's gene synthesis. All this has led us to uh, a new age of vaccine development, which is why we're seeing so many, an array of different candidates relying on many different technologies mm -hmm. um, in development. We'll probably uh, post a few links uh, to, uh, to some of this information. There's a great uh, graphic that Nature put out uh, at the end of April, and we should put the link up for that uh, as well, that uh, kind of lays out uh, many of these strategies and, and some of the science around this in a in a very consumable format. So uh, we understand that there are, so there's more than a hundred candidates uh, using a variety of different strategies that you just pointed out. Are some of these in clinical trials already? Yes, about 10 or so are in clinical studies. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one to make it through clinical study was an US-based company called Moderna, mm -hmm. which makes what we call an mRNA vaccine. And it's already transitioning to phase two slash three clinical studies. Mm -hmm. and, what, and what do the phase numbers mean? What happens in a phase one and a phase two and a phase three? Sure. So in a pandemic, you know, things tend to, tend to move much faster than the traditional linear pathway. But generally speaking, the phase one involves a small number of human volunteers or human subjects. And the main objective is to ident identify what is the appropriate dose for the vaccine that is going to generate the immune response, the desired immune response. You don't want to go into the clinic for you know, a, a major trial with a wrong dose mm -hmm. because you, if you give too little, the vaccine may look like it's ineffective. And if, if you give too much, you're wasting antigen that could be used to protect more people. So you want to get that right. Mm -hmm. And also you measure a little bit of the initial safety signals. We call reactogenicity really, how bad your arm is going to look after the vaccine. Mm -hmm. That's about it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then it moves into uh, phase two slash three clinical studies where uh, typically we randomize individuals to receive a placebo or another active vaccine against the vaccine of interest that is being studied. Mm -hmm. And then you measure, um, you know, you, you know, what uh, their immune responses are and whether sometimes they will, they will acquire the infection or uh, in the case of COVID-19, uh, because a lot of the infection asymptomatic, uh, an endpoint of interest is whether they will develop symptomatic disease. And if they do, if they have a more attenuated course. So there are many different endpoints to look for, but that's how we typically you know, look at these phases and assess whether a vaccine is safe and effective. Right. So th there's no there's no current vaccine. So you can't ask that question. You know, is, you can't ask whether it's better than or equal to an existing or, a pre you know, predicate vaccine. It's really kind of uncharted territory here. Yeah. And let me add something about yeah. that, because, you know, this is something that because we're going to have to we're going to we know that we need many, many different vaccines. It's possible that different vaccines, if we're lucky, that you know, move forward um, in clinical development, they may fill different, different uh, needs. Mm -hmm. So, and there'll be some interesting trade-offs that we will need to make. For example, if a vaccine may be a little bit less protective than another vaccine, but it can be scaled up much faster. Is that a worthwhile trade-off? Uh, if a vaccine works much better in a population that is not at risk for uh, complications from COVID-19, you know, normally we think about first initially targeting the population that is at highest risk. And, but if the 
most impactful public health benefit is vaccinating those that are spreading the disease but not getting so sick from it. Is that uh, an, an, an acceptable trade-off? There will be all these types of public health decisions that will have to be made going forward. And Lou, it's, uh, this is Dylan. It's, Kevin had mentioned as well is that we're in slightly uncharted waters because we don't have a, you know, a vaccine predicate that we can compare against right now. Um, it's been interesting you had mentioned that Moderna um, is in the farthest along stages in the development. The nucleic acid vaccines or the gene-based vaccines, I mean, it, it specifically the mRNA and the DNA vaccines, there hasn't been one that has attained licensure yet. And so what is your, uh, you know, are, how hopeful are you that, that these particular technologies will be useful or rather successful in going the distance in developing a vaccine? Sure. So uh, those are very important points. You know, it's, it's, it has never been developed into an approved product. Uh, and there are, so I put more weight into the scientific evidence to date uh, and less weight to the fact that it hasn't gone through the system yet, just because we are in this era of innovation. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are some limitations, including the fact that you know, it's very fast to design the initial candidate, but it's challenging to manufacture at scale. Mm -hmm. And um, they also has to be encapsulated in a lipid nanoparticle. There are temperature stability issues. So if this vaccine is you know, shown to be safe and effective, it's a game changer, but it can't, it's not going to be the game changer. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's a really great uh, dis description of it is uh, how we're going forward. You know, um, the average timeline of vaccine development historically has been uh, measured in multiple years, close to almost 10 years of development. And some vaccines that we already know, like HIV and malaria, we still struggle with developing vaccines for those particular pathogens. There's been a lot of discussion about this 12 to 18 months uh, timeline. Um, one, how confident do you feel about that timeline? And then after, you know, and then after that timeline, what should we expect? Um, would we have it, you know, so that everyone can get a shot in their arm? Or is it just going to be the point where we have um, good safety and efficacy data? <clears throat> yeah, that's great. Um, the timelines have been protracted, I think, mostly because speed of the clinical development tends to be slower when there is no imminent emergency, right? And there's a lot at stake right now. But also, uh, prior licensed vaccines have not necessarily availed themselves of what I described as renaissance in vaccine science. Uh, so I'm, I think going forward, we will see product development that relies on those modern technologies go faster. But the clinical development is just the first step of a process. And we can't lose sight of the fact that the goal is to have people vaccinated, vaccines in people's arms. Mm -hmm. And there are so many elements to be able to get there, yeah. including yeah. trust. Mm -hmm. So everything can be done from a scientific perspective, a technical perspective, really well. If we fail to uh, gain the trust of the population that is already very skeptical of science these days, we will not be able to achieve the public health goals. And all that work needs to be done now. The population is already very nervous also about this idea that are we cutting corners, are developers cutting corners? And there's no, there are no corners being cut. There are parallel processes in action. 
but again, that conversation has to start soon. In addition, after the clinical development, um, actually in parallel to clinical development, we need to be, be preparing manufacturing assets and initiate full-scale production of the vaccine drug substance before licensure because that will take time to be able to identify the manufacturing capacity. And I'll go a step further right now and say that we also have to, once we identify a manufacturing capacity line, we need to say, what else can this site produce? So let's initiate the tech transfer and the IP negotiations now, because if that vaccine turns out not to be working, we don't want to miss the opportunity to leverage that site. Mm -hmm. Then we have to be able to do fill finish, uh, which, you know, vaccine goes into vials. One issue that a lot of people don't know about is that there's a shortage of glass that um, these vaccines are vialed. And uh, there are some interesting technologies being discussed that could potentially provide uh, another mechanism for vialing, including, um, I think you know about that, uh, Dylan, the, the blow fill seal containers yeah. that are most associated with sterile. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's fascinating technology. It's an old technology. It's not, it's not relatively new. Yeah. Hasn't been used for vaccine. Uh, and, but again, they'll need a needle. And yeah. we have a shortage of needles or limited supply. Um, yeah, I think there was, that, there was that study that was done uh, internal within the, uh, that we saw as well. It would take two to four years to generate enough needles to respond to a pandemic uh, for, uh, and that was just to put out the vaccine, not for all the other medical purposes that people use in the vaccine. So, I mean, it's, it's going to be challenging. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, and not to be, you know, too granular, but there is, DOD is relying on a company called Inovio, which makes a DNA vaccine. They're doing the tech transfer to Ology, which you and I visited last year. Um, yep. and, uh, so in sunny, in sunny Florida. <laughs> in sunny Florida. You know, that one needs to be administered with an electroporation device. Yeah. And we need to make sure that, you know, they're there when we need them. Yep. It will literally be shocking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, so bad. <laughs> and then I'll just mention. Had to, had to do it. Had to do it. <laughs> uh -huh. I'll mention, um, you know, uh, just a couple more things is the distribution is not easy, especially under cold chain. I'm and when sure. you say cold chain, what do you mean? Well, so a lot of these vaccines, including the Moderna vaccine, it, it needs to be transported in very low temperatures. Uh, the Ebola vaccine, it gives the, what the experience we have with the Ebola vaccine gives me hope that this is a, something that we can solve because mm -hmm. nobody thought that we could distribute a vaccine in the middle of, a, of an epidemic of Ebola mm -hmm. in Africa and the DRC uh, for a vaccine that required very, very low temperatures. But that was a logistics um, solution that was developed by the WHO and other countries that actually worked. Mm -hmm. So it gives me hope, but it's a real challenge uh, at the scale that we need for this. We're right. going to have to keep a vigilance. You know, we're going to have to keep an eye on whether uh, we have side effects that are emerging that are rare that cannot be actually detected in the earlier studies. Mm -hmm. And there are issues with indemnification and liability protections that have to be addressed as well. And again, I mentioned that earlier, but I just don't think we can overstate that as the issue of trust. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm hopeful that if, if I, I, don't, I don't think we're going to see only one candidate come forward as a viable vaccine. I think if one does, then certainly others, you know, many of the, many of the approaches are similar or parallel in their nature. And if, if one company's approach does, related approaches are also likely, I think, to yield 
uh, a workable vaccine. So that fact there gives me hope. And there are so many shots on goal, as you say, that uh, I personally am, am pretty hopeful that uh, uh, a few of these are going to um, really uh, to yield some interesting results. This may be five or 10 right now in, uh, in, in currently in, in phase one or, or emerging into phase two, which leaves another 90 that are right behind it, developing the early preclinical data and, uh, and in the early clinical manufacturing to make enough uh, of, the, of each of the vaccines uh, to give to the trial population. So I, I think we're, we're in, I think the, a lot of the news that we're going to hear beginning later in the summer, uh, and, then, and then probably a steady drumbeat forward from there is going to be about the success or lack of success of, of a variety of different vaccine candidates. Yeah. And, and I think that it's worthwhile to say, you know, to, to reemphasize what Lou was talking about before too, is that not any one vaccine is going to be able to be used across all populations. And That's some right. will probably be more useful for, you know, uh, pediatric populations. Others may be more useful for um, older populations. And so I think that the, having this portfolio of vaccine candidates is just completely warranted uh, because of the speed and scale and um, need uh, over the next handful of years and uh, that we're going to see COVID being with us, without a doubt. Um, and, and it's interesting that um, we do take this portfolio approach when developing vaccines and it's standard and, and very thoughtful and a very rigorous process. We need to think about how to more effectively use that same sort of mentality with other sorts of technologies. In the past, we've talked about you know, data technologies for public health interventions mm -hmm. and thinking about how to learn from the biomedical um, development process and think about how to do testing and evaluation of, of those technologies to make sure they're fit for purpose so they don't cause harm and they don't cause a distraction as well. So, yep. um, but it's going to be very exciting. It's going to be exciting. Well, it'll be exciting months ahead on this, on this topic. What else should we cover here about vaccines today? Uh, so you want to talk about human challenge? You know, uh, so you mentioned human challenge, and that actually came up in a question from one of our listeners last week. Yeah, last week. Yeah. Around, the, around the ethics, uh, and wouldn't that make things go faster and so on. We, and we mentioned, of course, that when you do animal trials, uh, often what you'll do is immunize animals, allow the immune response to take effect, and then challenge them with the pathogen to see if the animals remain immune. We don't do this in humans, of course, but there has been discussions in the press, and people have actually made it known that they might be willing to put their hand up and volunteer, uh, incredibly brave uh, that they are that way, but personally, I'm not in favor of that kind of study, but I'd be curious to hear your views. Sure, I think I'm, I'm with you. I'm a skeptic about this, and for those who are not so familiar with the idea of human challenge studies, they involve a small number of volunteers uh, that are vaccinated and subsequently challenged with the SARS-CoV virus, the virus of interest in this case. And I think that there are a number of issues which make this strategy not so attractive. One of them is that even though the risk of severe disease in a healthy volunteer is deemed low, it's not zero. And we don't really yet have a very effective treatment that has been proven to, to counteract um, the deleterious impact of this virus. The second is that you have to develop a strain, a challenge strain that is relatively mild because you don't want it to have you know, super potent strain. So it may not really recapitulate the disease as it occurs in nature. And there's a lot of uh, 
prep time requires to develop this, you know, the right strain that challenge those to, so there's a huge amount of um, a time that is required to be able to even get to the point of doing the challenge study. You know, if you really focus on the time saving component. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, the, the fact that it may be efficacious in a young, healthy volunteer doesn't really mean that it's going to achieve the similar effectiveness in uh, individuals that are, who are older or have other uh, cofactors. Uh, and two more fact issues is that one, it's we don't have the safety database that you need to, uh, to really broadly use this vaccine. So it doesn't get you around doing the proper clinical studies. And it doesn't do anything to manufacture the vaccine. And says, no, if you need, if you have, you may end up with a handful of doses for a handful size human challenge studies. And then you say, well, it looks like it's efficacious. And then what do you do with that information? You still have to manufacture the vaccine to really use it. So I'm much more um, a supporter of the idea of, of moving very quickly to a very large pragmatic randomized controlled clinical study where you can actually detect the safety the efficacy and use every dose that is coming out of the manufacturing line as soon as possible in a way that helps us learn about this product and then transition rapidly to an emergency authorization once you have sufficient evidence that the product is safe and effective before it's licensed. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. You know, it's it's not a panacea for warp. You know, for for creating a shortcut to a vaccine. The risks both to the individuals and to the scientific validity of the test don't necessarily outweigh whatever time benefit you may or may not get from a human challenge experiment. So but yeah. on these lines though, too, it's like human challenge studies have been done for malaria and vaccine though in the past and for trying to push forward vaccines in those areas. Isn't that true? That's right. And very effectively and play a very important role in the design of malaria studies. Yeah, clearly, clearly there's, it's a different scenario in that we have better um, treatment um, modalities for those particular pathogens, and we understand the dynamics of those diseases a little bit better. And so that, it, it puts it in a different category, but there have been cases where human challenge studies have been used effectively in the past. Um, and so from, from my perspective, it's like I don't think that we should dismiss it out of hand, um, but we should definitely come up with a robust framework with which to uh, understand what are the trade-offs. And because I think the fundamental issue associated with human challenge studies is this idea of every day is creates more death. And so if we can shorten it by one day, that's, that's the benefit. And so understanding what is that broad framework and could we apply it in a similar way would be, I think, worthy of discussion. And does it really shorten it, right? Like, and does it really give you that's the question? Animal yeah, model that's exactly, give you, exactly, or does it actually delay it by introducing uh, this idea that you need an experiment before you move forward clinical studies, and then uh, and then you end up with a you know a lot of uncertainty around the product and pressures to use it more broadly based on very preliminary findings? There's so much, but I think I agree with you that it's worth you know going through the exercise of considering all the different factors to uh, even before we talk about the ethics you know does it does it really buy yeah. us time um, yeah that's that's that the key question is if it could buy us time then we should th think about it but if it can't then we should just take it off the table yeah i think that's i think that's right vaccines are a very complex topic and they are even more complex in the middle of the pandemic when you're attempting to develop them on the fly uh and more complex yet when there's more than 100 candidates all vying for resources 
and, and taking up the time of regulatory agencies and so on. Lou, thanks for joining us today. Uh, do you have any final thoughts that you want to share with our listener base? Well, thank you for having me, Kevin. And I, my question is to you. You know, you, you're the longest member of BeNext. <laughs> and what do you uh, envision BeNext to contribute uh, or has it already for the development of COVID vaccines? Well, you know, that's a, a little bit of an interesting question there. One of the things that we do at BeNext, of course, is to highlight to the world the importance of new and cutting-edge technologies in the development of medical countermeasures. And uh, podcasts like this and future guests that we may have on to talk about that very topic uh, are one of the ways that we are um, uh, you know, having impact. And we may, in fact, have a vaccine developer join us in the future uh, to talk about a, uh, a novel approach to developing what is one of the oldest forms of vaccines. Uh, and we'll leave that teaser there for the moment. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So, Lou, I want to thank you for joining us today. Thanks also to my outstanding and astonishing colleague, Dylan George, for all of his inputs today. And thank you to our producers, Christine Zenda, Zender and, and Carrie Sassine and Mark, our terrific sound guy today, so uh, our sound engineer. Thanks all, and uh, thank you all for listening. We look forward to talking with you next time. Stay safe, everybody. Mm-hmm.